Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Deanne Stewart, First State Super Chief Executive Officer. Welcome, Deanne. Thanks so much, Alex. Great to be here. So today we sit on July 1 and First State Super and Vic Super have completed their merger to create one of Australia's largest industry funds. I think I saw it's 120 billion and 1.1 million members. Can you give us a bit of a context of sort of maybe the last few months, you know, in terms of getting this merger finished on, on July 1 and, and sort of the, the last sort of final processes that you need to tick off? Fantastic. Thanks, Alex. Yes, and today certainly does mark a really momentous occasion for both funds, both for First State Super and Vic Super as we come together. Um, as you could imagine, the last, particularly the last four months, have been um, huge for both funds, uh, getting us to this point, not only um, really working through at the pointy end of a merger, everything from the successor fund transfer to the technology integration to our advice businesses integrating to the whole people side of integrating. But doing that on top with COVID-19 has probably made it equally um, and uh, significantly more challenging to get to this point. So I feel incredibly proud of both um, the Vic Super team and the First State Super team uh, getting us to this point. You know, you, you mentioned a lot of different areas that you had to pull together at the same time or at the finish at the same time around technology and systems. You know, how, how many of those are still going to be sort of legacy sort of areas that you're going to be working through around technology and understanding, you know, the various risks across both businesses that will continue? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point because when you're doing a merger at the order of magnitude of Vic Super and First Date Super, um, there's a huge amount that has been done to get us to this point. And that's particularly around, you know, the successor funds transfer and the integration of people and particularly on the technology side, all the, the technology, internal technology to make sure that we can all communicate, that we're all on the same email system, we're all on the same Yammer system, um, payroll, GL, for example. But you are right, there are still... Um, it's sort of day one and now the planning has begun in earnest for day two and that's much more the integration of our big registry systems. We've clearly got different administrative systems that we work on um, together with yeah, different advice systems, for example, and then really bringing the product sets um, together as well. So that really all is in our day two planning for the next six months. Mm -hmm. And, and in terms of the, the challenge of cultures, I know you when you spoke at our, one of our events late last year, you, you discussed some of the sort of the cultural differences. You know, how, how has that sort of process gone in terms of bringing the, the, the groups together? Yeah, I actually feel really passionate about culture and mergers and mergers success. I, I've certainly heard others say culture doesn't really matter when it comes to a merger. Ultimately, you're just bringing two businesses together and then you create the culture you want. I probably take a different view. I think the more you are aligned on culture and values, the easier it is to merge, quite frankly, and also the more likely you are to be successful. And I'd say, particularly with Vic Super and First State Super, we've had such a shared heritage. If you think about the heritage of First State Super having come out of the New South Wales government as the first state 
super, as the super fund for the New South Wales public sector, and then similarly for Vic Super out of the Victorian um, public sector. There's so much heritage there and a really alignment of values, particularly around member first, but also in the way that we both care deeply. We both have a real responsible investment and sustainable agenda. And so there's a real alignment and meeting of minds there that creates less tension, quite frankly, and, and clashes. Um, and certainly, therefore, makes all the challenges and all the hurdles that you've got to jump over as you're working through a merger that much easier when you've got that real alignment of culture and values. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You sort of we talk about one merger completing, but you've also still got another merger outstanding, being the WA Super that's there. And then, if you know, I also read in one of your announcements today that came out is that um, you're still going to have potentially more. Um, you know, Michael Dundon will be looking at future merger opportunities. So, how much does maybe give a bit of background on, on where we're up to on on the WA Super merger, and maybe a little bit about sort of how do mergers disrupt maybe the day to day activities in the firm. Yeah, okay. Very happy to. So, in terms of WA Super, just to let you know where that's at, um, we're still, uh, we've completed the due diligence process. And at the moment, the teams are really working on the business case and the merger deed, determining uh, whether it is indeed in members' best interest on both sides, um, both First State Super and WA Super. We're looking to take that to both of our boards at the end of July and make a determination as to whether the merger goes forward. And if it does go forward, then we're looking to really complete um, the merger by the end of this year. So that's essentially the roadmap that we're on with WA Super. Um, I think why we've been open about looking at um, that merger and other potential mergers is really I guess, a major theme that's occurring in the industry, which is really a a theme around the importance of scale. But I would also say not all mergers are equal and not all mergers are going to um, necessarily be the appropriate fit with First State Super. I mean, we certainly are a fund that believes deeply in member first, but also a fund that um, has real unique, I think, advantage, but focus on retirement. So, a quarter of our members are in retirement. Um, And so, we have a real both product pipeline, service proposition, and our whole advice um, business is around that moment of of retirement. That's going to suit some funds really well. They they may say, you know what, if we think about a merger partner, we actually want to consider someone that really does believe in responsible investment, but actually really thinks deeply about retirement advice, and that may not suit other funds. And so, I think for us, it's it's flagging that we do see consolidation as a key theme that will play out in the next five years. It won't be for all funds, but but certainly, um, I think it will be a dominant theme. Yeah, you mentioned scale there, and obviously, there's, there's the scale in terms of investment mm. side and the, and the size of businesses that you can invest in and, and, and types of transactions that you can do. But I wanted to sort of touch on the the scale that you know that comes alongside financial advice, and you've touched on advice and, and retirement. I said those two being very you know, connected. You mm. know, how, how do you deliver advice to such a large number? You mentioned a quarter of the members are already in retirement. Um, you know, already one point one million members. How do how do you then start to deliver that advice at, at scale? Yeah, I mean today we predominantly do do that through. Um, 
intra-fund and comprehensive advice, but we've also got some specialist advice services that we offer members, things like aged care financial advice, which is really popular with our members and estate planning. But you're right. I, I think certainly as you think about um, certainly uh, attempting to deliver that face-to-face, you can only get so far um, and serve so many members. And so we're doing a lot of work at the moment on the future of advice. Where do we see the industry heading, um, both at an industry level and the dynamics and the degree of disruption that's occurred in the advice industry, but also importantly, so that we can truly be there for our members Um, providing the right guidance, support and advice. And a lot of that is going to happen, I think, in the future in a sort of a digital augmenting the the human connection. And I think many members are still going to want to speak to and get help from a human, but I think digital will play an increasing role in that as well. Um, And I think that's certainly where we would look to continue to get scale from. But we are We are very committed to the importance of guidance and advice and being there for our members. Then finally, I'd say, and and strangely enough, COVID-19 has given us this opportunity to really um, accelerate this. I think the other way is really just lifting, quite frankly, financial literacy um, in general. And certainly, uh, we used to do this very much in person, in seminars and really helping people think about retirement, get ready for retirement. But we're now doing that a lot more via webinars, for example, and therefore being able to reach a lot more of our members and answer a lot of their um, questions there and then on the spot. So it's going to come from many different avenues, I think. And and if there's some silver lining to COVID-19, I think it is absolutely beholden on us to to use the opportunity to really digitise a lot of our services um, and be able to reach many more members. Mm-hmm. Let's let's stick on the on the conversation of advice and maybe a more controversial mm. comment around sort of state plus um, and some perceived conflicts of interest that were raised in in the financial media. Want mm. I know some of that transaction is before your time, but I wanted to get sort of your your thinking there and and maybe where the media has you know maybe got it wrong um, and sort of that broader backdrop. Oh, look, I I will touch on a bit where the media got it wrong, but I I do think you have to be live to the conflict of interest, quite frankly, of um, an advice business and a super fund. And, you know, I'd be foolish to sit here and say that there isn't a potential conflict of interest um, in an organisation that is more vertically integrated. I think what it is, is how do you actually really make sure that that potential for conflict of interest is incredibly well managed and you've got to be alive to it. And it's everything from making sure that the way that you actually really do um, set up financial advice and your financial advisors is very much with best interest of members in mind, that there are not added incentives to do the wrong thing, for example. Um, and that I think you've certainly seen play out in some other organisations where there's been extra money for doing your own product, for example. And I, I just, those sorts of conflicts you've got to stamp out. And then secondly, I think the premise and the way that we've set it up is really to be a service for our members, right? It's not not where I've seen it um, previously where it's ultimately it's a giant distribution arm that brings in members. For us, it's almost the opposite way around. We've got the members. (laughs) They actually just need the guidance and advice and help as they're heading towards retirement. And a lot of the queries that come in from our members around that 
really critical moment is it's the first time in their life that they have not they have started to contemplate what is life like when you're not earning a weekly or monthly income how do i actually set myself up for that how do i budget for that how do i actually combine you know what i've got in superannuation together with possibly age um, pension, um, which we certainly see in a lot of our type of member base, and how do I actually make the very best for use of that into retirement? So, from that perspective, the way that we've set it up and the way that we manage those conflicts, I think we do make sure that we're there to provide that very best guidance and advice for our members, but it is being really alert to the conflicts of interest. Probably it, the only other thing that I'd... Oh, sorry, you it, go on, Alex. No, no, continue. I, I'm going to ask one more question on that, but it could finish. Oh, I was just going to pick the point that you just said that was um, quoted in the media about being misleading. There was a, an element uh, in the media that talked about the fact that we had integrated State Plus into First State Super and it sort of insinuated that we did that to essentially hide the value of State Plus. There couldn't be anything further from the truth as we did that we absolutely sought independent advice to make sure that there was no value transfer in what we were doing. And in fact, we are talking about members to members. We're not talking about members to shareholders here. So you do have at least a reduced conflict of interest, but you've got to be really aware of it. So that point, I think, was just completely down the wrong track. Um, But I understand why they were pointing it out. Well, that was actually my, my, my next question is sort of you've got this situation where members are both the owners and customers of the service, right? And so how do you think about it? You know, the value is one piece, yes, but sort of members yeah. are also still holding these these assets on the book. And so the, 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 the tension I think that comes out is like, okay, you've got a cost of service and a price to sort of justify that value. And if the cost of that service goes down, then the value of the asset goes down. So you're a bit conflicted in terms of how to deliver advice and and the ultimate valuation. Yeah. And and look, ultimately, really what we need to do with our advice channel is make sure that we really are breaking even, quite frankly. And that's essentially what the law asks of you is to make sure that the cost of comprehensive advice or personal advice is actually equally... um, uh, charged to the member. And so that's really what guides us, Alex, and that makes that conflict much easier than, than you'd actually imagine. Um, so that, that's certainly the way that we have managed it. Um, in terms of the actual um, good value for members, essentially that is part of why we did integrate it, was that essentially having them as two separate organisations, you had a complete duplication of costs and it also meant that the member experience was clunky you know, you'd go from accumulation from a first state super perspective and then if you're seeing advice, then you'd clunkily go into State Plus, a different brand, a different digital website needing a different member number. So actually by integrating it, it was able to create a much better member experience, um, actually be good value in the sense of you were getting rid of the duplication. And then you're right, it then does come down to the cost of that advice and our guiding view on that is really around just making sure that members pay for the cost of that advice, um, you know, versus uh, necessarily a, a huge profit or a huge loss. And I think that's something that a number of super funds are going to need to face into, quite frankly, is being really clear around things like cross subsidisation and what they are and aren't willing for all members to pay versus um, what a member should pay for the service that they choose to use. 
the, the issue of cross subsidization is is fascinating because it does touch into group insurance as well. Um, advice obviously is, is another one that that's, that's a really big part of it. You know, how is part of the problem why there's this cross cross subsidization that comes up because that the funds don't have the ability to create or they don't have their own balance sheet, so they can't do these sort of transactions. They've got to try and work out that balance with member funds. I think um, if I touch on, I think they are separate things, Alex, for insurance as it is for advice. So I might take the insurance one first. Mm -hmm. I think the insurance inside super, I think as an industry, we're getting better and better at the big issues with cross-subsidisation, right? When you think about um, young members being charged a lot more than older members and not getting as much um, advantage. A lot of the super funds have moved to to actually changing the curve of insurance for those that are younger versus those that are older, right? So that's certainly one form of cross-subsidisation. But I would also say at the heart of insurance is subsidisation in some shape, right? Unless you believed every single member was going to claim you are by its very nature accepting a product that the way that you're able to reduce fees and actually ensure a really good premium that isn't charging too much for members is that everyone shares that burden to some degree because you don't know in the future, is it you or is it, you know, Johnny next door that is likely to have, you know, a life-changing event occur. And so I think a premise of insurance is in some shape or form accepting uh, subsidisation of some sort. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't exist or it'd be super expensive for many, many of our members. So that, I think, you need to get rid of what I'd say the egregious cross-subsidisation, but to some degree, uh, by group insurance, you are accepting the premise of that. I think as it relates to advice, I think funds need to be very clear and have a very clear view and policy around what degree of cross-subsidisation they are willing to um, meet as it relates to things like service. And that service is, is your service centres. It's intra-fund advice that's offered for free. And being really clear, how much is it okay for all members to wear versus where individuals should pay for that service. And I think that's certainly something that um, we're very live to. And I think um, our view of that is you want to offer um, as much under intrafund and the service centre as what as where members think, actually, I'm just calling up to get a bit of help around this issue that is just related to my fund. But the moment it becomes personal advice, you very much do need to, to have a pay-for-that-service mindset because ultimately that is a much smaller group of members that want that and it, it takes a huge amount of work and costs um, significantly more. And so that's sort of the way that we've divided in our mind and obviously it, it follows legally um, uh, how the law is set up as well. Yeah, it's interesting, and I'm glad you clarified that because I was sort of conflating two two issues there. I guess my the sort of the second one was outside of insurance, but to the advice piece, you know, there was question marks again about sort of the member, um, the members using their money through this permissionary note to to actually then buy the advice. Is part of the problem that maybe that conflict was seen that because super funds don't have the ability to have to have their own balance sheet, that they have to try and think of these new ways to to structure to be able to deliver advice that the way they want to. 
Well, I guess for us, that promissory note was simply an instrument. It was a way of the fund taking that over time. You're right, because we certainly don't have um, uh, the capital, but but certainly that remains, the promissory remains as part of the investment, the investment of the fund. So that's, that is the way that, we're, that we've set it up. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, in terms of more broader issues around sort of administration and investment costs, you know, a lot of these areas cost a large amount of money. Um, funds are under increased pressure to keep fees down, but all these increasing, you know, tasks that you need to do have, have a lot of costs associated with it. So how do you sort of balance that out in terms of where, where to spend money from an administration and service level, which you need to keep providing as, as people get older and, and have more interaction, and particularly in this current environment with early access, more and more costs come. You know, how, do you, how do you think about that sort of balance? Yeah, I, and I, I certainly, I think the point that you're raising there, Alex, in many ways is why our thesis is that scale matters and scale will matter increasingly because um, as much as us in the industry would love to think that this constant um, uh, changing of regulations and tinkering with the system is going to abate, it's not, right? And so sort of increasing both regulatory changes, compliance costs um, means that actually having that scale and that ability to do that and have a team dedicated to doing that and not then distracting the rest of the business is critical. I know many funds that have literally just had to stop everything just so that they can really meet the regulatory burden. That has not clearly been the case with us, but it's certainly a challenge that we have to face into. So, that's certainly on the compliance side. You you touched on um, administration and and I might take it up a level. I think as an industry, um, I don't think I'm being too controversial when I say the experience that we provide for members and administration has a huge part of that um, is probably significantly behind the experience members would have with many other industries. So I have no doubt in my mind that over the next five years, really making sure that you are creating as seamless and as frictionless uh, member experience of which administration is a huge feeder into is going to be a game changer. And I think um, for us, we're certainly looking at that seriously. A, we have to, right? At the moment between State Plus and First State Super, we've got two registry, registry systems and with Vic Super, we've got a third one. So we're facing into that right now with a whole project around the future of administration. Um, very much of the view of obviously getting the scale econ- the economies of scale out of that, but also with the mindset of how do we create a really frictionless experience for our members where a lot of it is automated, a lot of it is um, um, you know straight through and and really easy for our members and engaging so that's a, a really significant piece of work that we've kicked off mm-hmm. let's let's transition a little bit to sort of the, the current stage where we've got this early access that's come out so you've got the government looking at super as the as the cash cow on one side of the you know of, of the ledger on the other side of the ledger they they seem to be suggesting that super should play a, a greater role in nation building projects you know how do, how do you think about that sort of conflict that seems to be out there in in uh, the sort of the land of super at the moment um, there's no doubt it's a challenging time in super at the moment but y- you know what every industry is facing significant challenges at the moment um, so I, I certainly don't want to overplay it. But I think 
um, and certainly in a number of conversations I've been with other super funds, there's a real um, willingness and desire for super to play a really key role in the economic recovery. And in fact, I think um, uh, we would love to see it taken one step further, which is how do we actually play a really significant role in the economic recovery, but also in making it a more sustainable economy, a greener economy, quite frankly, um, that really does satisfy the need for jobs at the moment to really kickstart the economy, but also making sure that those jobs are in um, are, are, are putting us in a more sustainable path and quite frankly, from an Australian perspective, is setting us up with a competitive advantage for our economy and our companies. Um, if you think about the amount of you know, things like uh, solar and wind in Australia, we have such an advantage um, to do that. So I'd love to see uh, super playing a really significant role in that. And and I, my sense is that the superannuation industry is really up for it and doesn't see it as a as a conflict or a, or a challenge, but really wants to engage in it. It's interesting, you know, one of the one of the conversations that some of the smaller funds is that there's not enough investment opportunities because of their size. You know, locally they say, well, there's 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 not enough here happening, and so they're starting to move overseas. Does you know how do you think about maybe that that sort of platform in terms of how to invest in Australia, but at the same time make sure that the fund sort of thinks globally as well for for different opportunities. Yeah, I think the reality is you have to do both, right? You have walk and chew gum at the same time. Because the reality is now that we're heading towards sort of the three trillion mark from a superannuation perspective, I mean, we are, you know, 150% of the Australian Stock Exchange. So um, both in terms of a listed sense and the opportunities here, I think we've got a huge role to play, as I mentioned, but I think to make sure that you really are both protecting your members and also investing um, for the best possible returns for your members. You've got to look both here domestically, but you've also got to look abroad. There are endless opportunities in the globe to tap into, both from an infrastructure and unlisted side, but also in a listed side as well. So I think you've you've genuinely got to look at both. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, one of the things that First Aid Super has been doing recently is is taking on more internalisation of, of its investment um, tools. You know, some, some of the criticism about that is sort of how to make sure that there's a fair benchmark in terms of performance for those teams versus other external managers. There's really not much detail about that um, to sort yeah. of outside um, groups. Um, and they, they're sort of asking, well, hold on, we want to be able to, to investigate. You know, what, what do you say to those criticisms? Yeah, um, once again, I think that they're, they're um, fair questions to be asked. And I think it goes back to an earlier question that you asked me, Alex, about being really live to the potential conflicts that you set up and making sure that you're managing them appropriately. So certainly as we've looked to internalise teams, um, and I, I have to say I'm incredibly proud of the investment team um, and how well they have done both um, with what we've internalised but also in general, Um we have set really clear benchmarks. Um, the the issue is you you actually can't necessarily judge them in the first six months or year. It does take years to work through the success of these internalized internalized teams. But we've set clear benchmarks um, that we're looking to achieve with those internal um, teams, so that we can clearly manage. Um, accordingly and determine the value that they're doing. So that's certainly one thing, but then also the second element to it is obviously the cost side. And that's a lot easier to determine straight up front uh, clearly 
with significant fees that you see with many external managers, um, the cost savings that we are able to make by internalization is able to be realized almost immediately. And you can track that very easily. Mm-hmm. Another question around sort of the board and the composition of the board, your board's getting larger and larger. And one of the questions I wanted to ask, hey, you've got this this large board that, that you're operating with, but at the same time, the fund's growing more and more internationally and more money's going internationally. Do you feel there's a potential need for for more people that are international people to maybe be a part of the board, given how investment's changing, how the fund is investing is also changing? Um, I'll take that in the two parts. One is is certainly the expanded board. And so I'll touch on that, but then I'll, I'll also touch on the, the international side. So um, in terms of the expanded board, I guess just to give you um, a sense of what we've done, and a number of, uh, a number of people have, have called me up and asked about this question, more to say, how have you made that happen with the merger with, with Vic Super um, to ensure that you're doing the right thing by members, but that the board has been comfortable um, uh, through the process. And, and what we did early on, which I think is um, uh, really, um, I, th- I do think is a really good um, best practice uh, example, is set really clear governance principles. And one of the principles that we set up is that the board should represent um, the member demographics and the member, um, and that that's the way that the board would be determined. But also, Separately, we also said through a transition period, as I mentioned to you a bit earlier, we're going into day two where we're still looking to integrate the products, integrate the administration side. We actually determined the need to make sure that there was um, four Vic Super members that came across to make sure that both the Vic Super members and the First State members were were, um, well looked after through this transitionary period. And so, our board is 13 today for First State Super and the board um, for up to two years will go up to 15. And so two of our board members are stepping down and four members from Vic Super um, are coming in. So it will be a board up to two years of 15. So that's an equal rep board of seven and seven plus an independent chair. Um, The board has also agreed that come um, before or at June 2022, the board will then scale down to 10 plus an independent chair. And the reason that we've determined that is we do think that that ultimately longer term, once we've got through the transition, is the ultimate size that you'd want of a board. And the principle there, once again, will be that the board will represent um, be representative of the underlying member base, and that's how it will be determined. And so all the um, um, board members have have agreed to that and, and signed up to that. So that's sort of how we've worked it through. And it's been very member first focused in the way that we've gone about doing that. And I think it has shown real integrity of the board members. Um, so then take the second part that you've um, mentioned, which is, would we consider international um, uh, members on the board. I think ultimately, you know, given that our members are all Australian members, I think an, an Australian board at the moment serves us incredibly well. I think the reason why you've talked about international is really the fact that a lot of our investments, you know, um, are internationally based. And I think the more important element there to have on your board is to make sure that you've got a really good mix um, of both diverse skills, but real um, understanding of investment markets. And so certainly both at our board level and in our investment committee, um, we've made sure that on the board, we've got really experienced uh, individuals that 
um, a very knowledgeable on all things investment, both globally, internationally and domestically. Um, but also, um, ha, you know, a few of the members of the investment committee have run money before as well. So we've just had a new board member join us. Um, uh, he's a gentleman by the name of Philip Moffat, for example, who um, uh, I think for close to 20 years um, ran uh, the fixed income side and then the Asia Pacific for Goldman Sachs for asset management as an example um, and with that type of knowledge, he has that global perspective, given that he lived and worked in Hong Kong for many years, but is now more based in Australia and can bring that type of knowledge to the board. So that's the way that we've we've made sure we've got that type of skill set. Mm-hmm. No, I understood. It's one of those interesting ones. We had a, a global um, fiduciary investor symposium recently. And when you hear from different people from Canada or France, when they speak, their, their worldviews are very different. Hence, yeah. the, the investment uh, philosophy, I think, would be very different as well. So that was sort of where I was where I was going there. Um, the final question is is a, tr- a tricky one. And you sort of touched on sustainability and, and ESG a little bit at the start. But, you know, the, the whole area of ESG and sustainability is getting really challenging as to how to how to sort of balance. And look, many super funds tell me there's no, there's no trade-off between ESG, sustainability, and, you know, the returns and the fiduciary responsibility. Now, there was an interesting conversation um, that we raised in Investment Magazine the other day about sort of Duke and Gorge and the caves, the, the Aboriginal caves that were, were damaged. Um, and First State Super chose to reduce it from the the socially responsible investment option, but didn't change in the default option. Now, just sort of curious on, on sort of the thinking behind that and also, um, you know, how those challenges sort of play into investment decision-making for a fund that, that's trying to sort of balance balance the two out. Yeah, I think, I think, I certainly think you're right that ESG is um, uh, playing a much more significant role in super funds uh, at the moment and certainly into the future. And I think in many ways that's because it has to. Uh, if you think about both the environmental, the social and the governance issues that have occurred over the last number of years and the value, both creation and destruction from different um, particular issues, you've got to be alert to this. And, and we've gone to the point where we've now fully integrated it right across our portfolio Um but to your point, some of these issues are not black and white um, and you need to work through and navigate what the right thing is for your members with very much that focus of what is in the long-term best interest of our members and that's certainly what we use to guide us. Um, in terms of the specific issue that you've raised in regards to the Duke and Gorge um, in the Western Pilbara, um, uh, certainly for us, it seemed a really clear thing of what we needed to do, which was for our main fund, our default fund, um, that we were extremely concerned about the events that occurred um, and so certainly sought urgent meetings with the company to really understand the adequacy of their governance, um, the community engagement and the policies really surrounding that. And that's that's certainly where we began was with that engagement mindset um, and I think following that engagement, we've certainly determined that Rio Tinto um, obviously has apologised for the distress that they've caused, but also importantly, um, commissioned an independent review to investigate the circumstances uh, following that. And that is important, I think, um, for the f- long term 
likely performance of that as an asset, right? And so I think if we had determined that they were doing this again and again and again, we might reach a different conclusion, but certainly engaging with them, making sure that they were taking the matter seriously, as I know a number of other super funds did, was really the first thing. Then I, I guess your point is why do we then act on the SRI side? And once again, we're very clear with our SRI in terms of the objectives and what we've, we've got. And we've got both positive and negative screens in our SRI. And that's where members have deliberately chosen to go into that fund and expect us to take action, knowing quite frankly that that will cause greater volatility in many ways into the portfolio because you are moving in and out of different companies. And so uh, one of the the screens we've got there is really around the social side and we call out specifically with our SRI um, how the Indigenous, how they engage with and how the Indigenous um, uh, uh, people are treated. And so therefore, from that perspective and the distress that was caused, we felt that that was an appropriate action to take in our SRI option and that's why we, we took action. Um, but you're right, these matters are quite complex and I think the team did a really good job working through that and the nuances to it. Yeah, look, it, it's something that we're not going to be able to solve in, in a 30-minute conversation, the complexity around ESG and, and people sort of, everyone has different views on, on what's sustainable for them and what meets their different goals is a very tricky thing. So uh, I acknowledge it's, it's, no, it's no easy task to sort of balance that out. But that's... Um, that's uh, I just bit, think the oh, thing, sorry, oh. Alex, I was just going to say, I think the thing there though that um, is beholden is to have just that really clear policy um, and make that as transparent as possible and then and then stick to that as you believe that's in your members' best interests. So that's certainly the guide that we've taken. Mm-hmm. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Deanne. No problem. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.